to say life life has gotten different since i started ordering the donuts the night before (laughs) since you started pre-ordering the donuts (laughs) yeah because here's what happens and this has been what i would probably call my central struggle for the last i don't know four years of my life i mean it's definitely the worst thing the most crucial thing that's been happening to me um the donut place runs out of donuts a lot Or rather, specifically, they run out of the good donut. The best kind, which yeah. is a brown butter glazed brioche style donut. So you've got you've got a real high variance situation with this store, where like one of their donuts is the best single treat you can get in, in the world, in maybe the world over. But the rest of their donuts are just average. They're just like good donuts. Yeah, but like you don't go there for the average donuts. So agonizing day, agonizing day, agonizing year after agonizing year. Yeah. I would walk over at increasingly earlier times, and they would always be out. Well, yeah. And then the last time you and I walked over there, it was, like, below – it was, like, 10 below. It was, And it was, like, 8 a.m. It was, like, 8 a.m. on, a, like, a Friday or something – or Thursday or a Friday. And my horrible neighbors and, were out. Yep. Just and in we, line. And – we got there, mm-hmm. and we had to go with, like, not even the second choice, really, like, the 12,000th mm-hmm. yep. choice, yep. which was um, uh, a fit, like, a cream-filled raised yeah. donut right. that's glazed with right. some regular, or that's that's dipped in some regular sugar. And the problem is, is that our donuts weren't filled. That was funny. We had no cream. <laughs> so then we just had, like, a sad, gigantic <laughs> raised got, donut. <laughs> I got, like, halfway through the donut, like, pretending to myself that there was cream there wasn't i was like no no this is good you're just not you're just not you're just not at the cream part yet (laughs) and then i like ate the whole like it was Mm. very sad but anyway i've started pre-ordering and now what happens is i get there and my order is just ready and there's a line down the block and i scoff at them like the prince of persia (laughs) looking upon my subjects it's and then you bring them to my house in during the 15 minute drive you eat (laughs) two of them and then the third one's always like a flex donut. Like, it's really for Eric, but he pretends that it's for Nick, who's my husband. And then Nick is always, like, taking a bath or something when Eric comes over. And so Eric ends up eating the third donut. I sit there when I get him. I sit there in my car running, yeah. like, in the rain and just, like, have a real, like, midlife crisis moment where I'm just, like, <laughs> devouring this thing like a raccoon um, because I can't. I, I wanted a stoplight today. Like <laughs> This is... So if you're wondering, like, what fuels this podcast, exactly that. Like, literally, there's nothing else. There's just, like, vibes and and sugar. Well, it's a different era of the show. I feel like there was an era of the show that was fueled by Super Moms and Kit Kat. And Chipotle. And Chipotle. Yeah. And now I think that it's more of a donut situation. Sure. But. Yeah. Every once in a while, we will also get really fancy Viennoiserie from a place by my house. But mm-hmm. it honestly, like, even though that stuff is, like, the best croissants you'll ever have, it's still not, like, will the you say donut. That, say that word again. No. You know which word. No, I'm not going to say it I'm not going to say it again. Welcome to this. I'm trying to figure out how to like say any of these words with the fun little accent you just gave us. Uh, welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. 
with me as always is Laura Zatz. Uh, say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Um, we actually do have things of substance to talk about today, which may be hard for you to believe so far. But um, we're going to talk about nonfiction stuff. We're gonna we've got a really good Tulum at May concern. Um, and before we get to any of that, how about the basic rundown? Absolutely. Um, so if you are listening and you are a writer who is working on their book or are working on submitting, you might want to consider giving our Patreon a shot. Um, we have special episodes specifically aimed for writers every month. We always have a query show where we critique queries that were sent in by our listeners. Mm-hmm. We have a first pages show, which is the same thing, but with first pages instead of queries. And we usually have a flexisode. Um, but one of the things that we're also adding in at the beginning of this year to kind of just like make sure that we cover everything that people wanted to know about while we were gone is we're doing a bunch of mini-sodes. So we posted the first two of those already. One is about new adult books. One is about nudging agents. Um, so if you have queries, first pages, anything that you want us to do like a solid 15 on that's like not quite robust enough to be its own episode, but is also not something that like fits in a tweet discussion, um, that's perfect. I yeah. think like the other key to the format is like an isolated topic that you would theoretically want to be able to just quickly reference in our library by name, yes. right? And so, like, just anything small like that that just feels like, hey, I would just love to listen to a quick 10, 15 minutes on that specific aspect of the publishing process. Yep. So you um, can you can get in touch with us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. And also, if you're listening to this and you say, wow, that sounds really nice, but I can't afford a Patreon subscription, uh, send us an email. Yes. We give anybody access to our Patreon, yes. no questions asked. Um, last thing to mention today uh, is a content warning specifically for transphobia. We're not talking about it the entire episode. Um, Very briefly. But yeah. we're going to be briefly touching on the uh, the letter that was sent to the Women's Prize um, about detransition baby and how it's bullshit. So <laughs> if that is not something that you can deal with today, yeah. Yeah. Um, join us next week. <laughs> so here yes. we are. Yeah. So I, I this is this is feeling weird because normally you team me off because I have lots of opinions about things. Right. Um but I have been mostly just like spending the last several days staring at my calendar, like counting the days until I'm fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Which yesterday I hit the one month mark exactly. Yay. So yeah. Um and you're gonna be fully vaccinated just like a few days after me. Um mm-hmm. And um, meanwhile, my husband is spending all of his spare time convincing strangers on Facebook to get vaccines. <laughs> um, like, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, and so that has really got me thinking about an area that you work in in publishing, yeah. which is popular science. Yes. Um, and I just want to kind of explore today uh, and really learn from you, Eric about the intersection of scholarship and like popular science, popular nonfiction, and kind of like where that's headed, how can we in, you know, the age of like ridiculous, like bad Facebook science, like how can publishing move into that space and really like take control of it? I'm mad at Dr. Drew. Like we've got a lot of (laughs) things to talk about. (laughs) It's just such, I I feel like, the, th- the place we should start is just by 
like just pointing out the conditions that we're we're talking about, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, we are in a period right now where, similar to I think what happened with like politics in people's minds over the last four years, where like rather than like background noise for just the average you know person who doesn't necessarily consider themselves a deeply political person, like stuff became harder to ignore. And, mm. and it became like, and we saw in response to that a prolifer- proliferation of things like news books and like things, you know, and like publishing projects that were designed to kind of capitalize on that increased level of attention on things that maybe people weren't yeah. ordinarily paying attention to. And the form changed, right? Like those new yeah. books because yeah. of, and we've done episodes we've on We've done this, a million but... episodes. I talk about all the time about yeah. how like the pitfalls of it, how, it be, you know, these things sort of became irresponsible. They were happening yeah. at the expense of other projects, things like that. Moving from something that is a sort of more in-depth, more well-researched format, it transitioned into, like, a long magazine article that could be pushed out really quickly. And that, even that characterization <laughs> would be welcome compared to some of the things that we saw. Yeah. But I think that, you know, I mean, even even just take what you just said about your husband for a second, right? Like, Science, you know, he's not a scientist. He's not someone. No, he's a he's literally a musician, <laughs> like as his but job. <laughs> he and like so many other people right now, they are thinking and talking about science on a re- on the regular, yeah. as part of their daily lives now. I mean, science is no longer something you learn about in school. It's something that is that you have to sort of think about and weigh with regard to, okay, can I see my friends in this specific situation? Can I go visit family? Can you bring your coworker donuts? Exactly. Like, these various things, like, the point is, like, we're in a period now where these scientific, or, like, epidemiology, things like that, they're very pressing, and they're very, they're not subtext, they're not background noise anymore. These are things that minute by minute affect the way we act and think. Everybody has to think about them. Every minute of every yeah, day. Yeah, I mean, we're, I mean, all of us in like have become sort of amateur epidemiologists like several times a day. I feel like at this point, and it's obviously driving all of us nuts. It makes discussion online, you know. I mean, how often in your feed, Laura, and you know, certainly in mine, you see someone making some sort of like really broad declaration about what's okay and what isn't. You know, and then you get people mm-hmm. in, the res- in the replies that are like, oh, well, what about this, this, and this? Or what about my specific situation? Or what about when you do it this other way? And, like, the result is just, like, this completely contradictory mess of standards and risk evaluations and all these different things that have made, like, the – and this is obviously not the most important consideration of the pandemic, but, like – the social and interpersonal part really, really difficult, I think, mm. for a lot of people because everyone is weighing different sets of uh, risk values and things like that. But the point is we're in a period where accurate information – and this is a you know kind of a bland point – but like where accurate information, especially scientifically, is more important than ever and it's more like we're all seeking it more than ever. And similar to what's happening in politics – or what happened in politics, because I'm going to make a point in a little bit that I think we've sort of exited that era. Um, we've reached a point where there's a lot of dangerous, like, like if publishing does what we often believe it is going to do, there's going to be a spate of some very dangerous things getting published. And so, like, I'm just worried that in the same way that we saw the sort of puffed up or, you know, to use a terrible turn of phrase, a trumped up version of like 
the political history book, we're going to see things like that in science. And frankly, we already are. I mean, we've seen some of the worst carnival barkers online about like how the pandemic is a hoax and how the vaccine is super harmful and all these different things. Like those people are getting book deals right now. And they're getting book deals because of the same incentive system that rewards all sorts of other bad books, right? Like it's based purely on, oh, this person commands a huge amount of attention. Sure. Right? This person gets, you know, whether or not they actually know what they're talking about is a much secondary concern to how many people will buy this, how many people will, you know, talk about this, look at it, make it, you know, drive discussion around it, have it fly off the shelves, all that kind of stuff. So before we kind of dive into the specifics of of what we're guessing that we're going to see with pop science and all of that, I kind of, for people who don't read a ton of uh, scientific nonfiction, um, I would love for you to just give a little bit of a primer yeah. about like the role pop science plays in kind of scholarship and academic yeah, thought sure. and kind of what it plays in the market. Like who what 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 are these books normally about? Who is reading this? So I think the way I've come to understand pop science books, um, especially, you know, so like for those who don't know, my background, you know, before I was an agent. You know, I worked on the editorial staff of the Pop Science List at Oxford University Press, which is, um, it does some pop science stuff, but it also, and I think especially, you know, interestingly, both for this conversation and for the way I've kind of thought about other things in my career, it does more, it does science books for people who are not general readers. It does science books for other experts, right? Like it does monographs, academic publishing, things like that. Mm -hmm. And a thing would happen when I was working on that list that I think about all the time still, which is that anytime we would get in an exciting proposal from an agent, Mm -hmm. um, which at a place like OUP is somewhat exciting because a lot of a lot of their publishing and a lot of their acquiring at any academic house or smaller press like that, it it isn't all agented submissions, right? Like it's a lot of academics submitting on their own. Like when you get something from an agent, it's like night and day tradier feeling like it feels much more like excited you know the proposal has like stylized copy in it and things like that which you don't get the rest of the time and yeah. like so somebody's already thought about how to sell this book exactly. and it's not me right exactly yeah. which is again not as common as you would think in that sort of publishing but um one thing that happens at an academic press like that is you have to send things out on peer review um in order to acquire them and you have to get you have to pass a certain amount of like quality control on an academic level in order to publish anything, including a pop science book. And one thing that would happen a lot is we would get in a proposal that sounded exciting, that maybe had a big splashy thesis about something that we could easily see how it would sell, all this different Mm -hmm. stuff. And we would send it out for, or I, you know, I was the, you know, the person in charge of that process. I would send it out to various other academics in my contact list and say, hey, what do you think of this? Do you think this is a book that should be published? You know, whatever. And, or, or even apart from, actually, what even apart from their value judgment on whether it should be published, what I really wanted to know was, is the academic thinking here solid or is this a bunch of nonsense? This already feels like a million miles away from a lot of <laughs> nonfiction so, work no, that's happening. No, that's and where, that's where the point I'm building toward, which is that, so we would get things back, and a lot of the time, we would have to say no specifically to agented submissions, to things that were meant for more of a pop market, because they just didn't hold on any sort of academically responsible level. And what would happen 
is those books would then turn around and they would get sold to trade presses and they would go out and you'd see them on shelves and you would sit there and know that it's bad that science. book didn't pass review, you know? And that's the thing I really and so like your question up front was how does pop science relate to scholarship? Mm-hmm. And this I think to be clear, we're talking about science, but this is something that I think relates to a lot of other academic disciplines too like I work in history too for instance and this same stuff would apply Um, but I think of a really a really good pop science book as being just slightly downstream from scholarship Mm. right like you have a you know like something happens in the scientific scholarly community and you know papers get written papers for other scientists not for you Um, you know some sort of exciting thing happens you know people talk about it in terms of you know using their dense academic language meant only for each other and then what happens is eventually one of those scientists or a journalist covering it is able to take all that and translate take it take all the stuff that only right. experts understand right. and do that act of representing it in a way that all of us can understand that a lay audience understands right and like this this actual that level of work is often very difficult for the academic themselves to do like and that's why a lot of pop science books are actually written by journalists and mm. a lot of or people you know essayists people who aren't the person who did the original research right because like i don't know how much conversations you guys have had with academics and ask them to talk about their work but you get in the weeds really fast yeah. <laughs> like well people... i mean that happens with expertise always Absolutely like once does. once Absolutely you're working at a certain level it's hard to gauge what a layperson might know, what you might need to explain, what they might need be able to synthesize on their own, and what needs to be given to them. Yeah. Um, and so what's happened, I think, um, in and so like for when I'm looking for pop science stuff, which I do, I've you know I had a neuroscience book published last week that's doing well that we're really excited about, um, like. I'm looking, one, for, you know, someone who's an expert, whether by journalistic trade or because they themselves are a scientist. But two, they have some sort of experience writing about that for a popular audience, right, Mm. in a way that's responsible, first and foremost, and then, you know, engaging and all the rest of it, too. So follow-up question. Um, Popular science, it's science for a a general audience, right? Yes, that's what we mean, yeah. so beyond just like these books can make money because people theoretically like to read about science, like is there an overall um, like academic aim with these projects in the same way that there are with like academic papers or journals? Like is is the idea of translating a subject or a thesis into something that is more commonly understood is like is the goal there for this book to like overshadow all of the sort of in-group academia there like is the goal for that is the goal to push this forward academically also it depends on the subject matter which is why being in a pandemic is so interesting for a topic like this because it's like if the question is how necessary on an academic level, like if you're if you're a scientist and you're sitting around mm-hmm. with other scientists and you have your big idea and you want to present it to the masses, the question is how necessary for our field is it for normal people to understand this, mm. right? 
And on some topics, maybe like organic chemistry or, you know, really, you know, things that we, the general person doesn't really know a lot about and sort of exists as background, you know, fundamentals to things that will someday affect people's lives. The answer is kind of no. You know, like we, I don't, you know, someone who discovers a new element in the periodic table or something, I mean, I just pulled something, like something, anything very detailed like that, like that's the sort of thing that probably it's fine if just scientists know about it. But when the topic is something like, does this vaccine work or (laughs) how do pandemics spread or where, you know, what we're going to see is like, how did coronavirus, you know, what happened during yeah. this year? You know what I mean? Like yeah. stuff that, about climate change. That, yes, stuff climate. About, yeah. cha- we're going to get to climate change. Climate change is another very crucial example of all this that is coming um, and sort of fits the same mold in a lot of different ways. But like, the point is, you can see how that's more of public concern and how mm-hmm. convincing someone who isn't a scientist of what is scientifically true becomes important to the scientists, not just in terms of like selling copy, you know, trying to make a little popular money off your idea, but like. It actually does affect your field. Yeah. You know? If you're and, an epidemiologist and right. you're trying to push a COVID vaccine, having the public want to co- take yeah. the COVID vaccine exactly. matters. A core part of yeah. that scientific field is getting public buy-in or swaying public opinion, right? And so I want to take that idea and like set it against where you and I have talked for years about where the incentives of publishing often is. Uh-huh. And Hopefully anyone hearing that me say that is starting to blanch a little bit because (laughs) like the incentives in publishing, whether it's honestly, whether it's fiction, whether it's nonfiction, whether it's anything else. Right now, the incentives are not necessarily in that good of a place. Right. Like we're not influence and education and expertise. It's money. No, it's 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 how surely can we sell this to as many people as possible. And how can we do that, you know, in a way that looks responsible, you know, without getting people, you know, too riled up? You know, can we just get this thing, um, you know, how can we get this book, whether it's good or not, into the hands of as many people as possible? And, like, that is the sort of environment that, apart from, you know, really kind of doing a lot of damage, I think, as we've discussed, like, to the publishing ecosystem as a whole, where, you know, the mid-list has totally gone away. We're rewarding people with quote-unquote big brands more than we are people who are truly refreshing or new or skilled writers, you know, anything like that. But when we turn that same environment towards something like epidemiology or, as we're going to see sooner rather than later, you know, climate stuff, like, that gets dangerous really fast because, you know, and we've seen deals. I mean, like, you know, I don't want to start shit, but, like, you know, Alex Berenson got a book deal the other day, and he's been widely discredited as, you know, someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about. And, like, it's it's just – it's really tough to look at this stuff and say, you know, how can – like, how can the nonfiction market sort of correct itself? And you asked me yesterday, I think, a really, like, interesting question, which is, like, are we too late? Are we too late for publishing to produce actual, like, good academics for the public and have that influence? And so this is that's a great question. And this is the part that I think is really difficult, both for writers and publishers to understand. And it's not where our incentives are. 
But but I, to me, the answer is that by our current standards and by the current logic of publishing, yeah, we are too late. But by the standards of what the field should be and what publishing should be, we're definitely not too late. And it's all the more essential to correct the record. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because like in a few years, someone, you know, something else is going to happen, you know, whatever it is. And they're going to say, well, what happened during the last time something, you know, like they're going to want to look backward and they're going to look for books on this. And we're going to need solid records of what happened written by someone who was driven by more than just moving copies in week one. Yeah. You know it, what I it's mean? It's also and, it's it's definitely worth mentioning that this this tale that Eric is mentioning um, books, although publishing tries to convince you that it for especially nonfiction, it's, you know, one week or one month and then kind of they're gone forever. Um, books have a super long tail life. You know, like theoretically, yeah. it takes two and a half years for a book to reach market saturation. Yeah. And that's with like constant pushing. And that's also like, I think that it's also the situation where when you're talking about smaller numbers, like, I mean, truthfully, most most pop science, I mean, some scientific books especially ones with and this is another place where epidemiology is really fascinating where like science books with a slight slight self-help angle you know tend to do really really well and like you could see how or like a science book that like offers something for how you should live or change your life you know like you see a ton of like evolutionary biology books about like sleep or focus or mental health or anything like that okay let's 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 focus on that a little bit because i like is okay first of all is it good or bad like do you do you like this or do you not like like, this i like that fine if it's responsible work i mean and i and i think it's an example of something that is popular because it should be right like you have someone who's an expert in a field Uh talking about their science and using that science and applying that science in a way that might make someone's life better okay and might change somebody's opinion about something right totally good that that's a totally sure I like that just fine. But so that's kind of a more modern format that we're it is, that yeah. we're pushing into that can be used in a good way right. to attract people. Right. And yeah. I think the thing of it is, though, is that most pop science books aren't that, right? They're about a topic, you know, they're, and they don't necessarily have that. I, I keep calling it a self-help hook, which isn't quite right. But you the get lifestyle. What I'm, hook. Yeah, exactly. You get what yeah. I'm saying. A health and hook. Those books don't do like number one bestseller numbers which means that when you talk about like market saturation they don't get that same push up front which means that the incentive all the more reason to give it a longer tail life to say hey it's really crucial that we write this yeah and that when it comes time we have this to reference and like i think you know the reason i brought up politics books to start is because i think that there is a template there for how this could this could maybe go and what could maybe happen and one thing that i'm seeing right now in my conversations with nonfiction editors like so we've talked so many times on this show about that constant balance between wanting to capture what's on people's minds right now and wanting to write something more enduring yeah right and that is i think over these last few years that question has sort of defined like my conversations with nearly every author on my list, mm. you know, because it's, hey, and I've had, you know, and even when we sell them and t- have them talking to editors, like, you know, I've been on calls where we've sat there and thought, okay, well, what if, you know, what do we do with my last three chapters if 
uh, Joe Biden wins, if Donald Trump wins, like how does the present moment affect what I'm writing if I want it to yeah. endure, you know? And like it's like something has happened though in – and I think this shift is really crucial to understand especially with regard to science. Like it's that need to capture people's attention – Mm-hmm. right now and publish something as quickly as possible to hit a moment I believe that that's fading um, and I think and to be even clear even in science? no not in science oh, but, but in I think, politics I think politics is a few years ahead yeah. and I think that what's going to happen is the same thing that was driving po- politics books in 2016 through 2019 you know like that sort of flash oh man here's the next like splashy tell all here's the thing we're going to see that in other disciplines right now and then what's going to happen is the same thing that is now happening. Like, a couple of those books fail. The, once and then... Biden won the election, I got every editor I talked to, not every editor I talked to, but many editors that I talked to were suddenly like, well, I'm not so sure. Obviously, politics are as important as ever and all that kind of stuff. But like in terms of popular imagination and popular consciousness, there is going to be sort of the sense that people are going to stop tuning in quite so much oh, you know what i mean that is such a privileged take you know, it, hurt, it, it hurts so much um. I th- so to be clear obviously <laughs> that take repulses me as well but i do think that it's accurate i do think that mainstream people on their couches who don't necessarily consider themselves overtly political people probably are going to watch msnbc a little bit less now that biden is in office you know yeah. what i mean um, because they're not alarmed at all times even if they should be which is a whole other <laughs> podcast episode but like it's the point is i'm worried about how the record the scientific record in popular imagination is going to be calcified in sort of these fast impact science books that you know especially once the pandemic quote unquote and i really really put it in quotes especially once the pandemic ends like people are going to suddenly become less and less armchair epidemiologists. You know what I mean? They are going to quit posting all day about what they think are safe CDC guidelines. Like, and what needs to happen in that moment is we need to have more. So we need to have written and we need to have presented more sober accounts of what happened, more responsible yeah. accounts of what happened. Because when the attention fades, and we've seen this in politics books too, when the atten- when people move on to the next thing, those books look silly. Right. Like those Bob Woodward books or like all these like horrible politics books that were just like these giant flashes and pans. Like who cares now? Yeah. Right. Like you would you could sell those. like what value do any of those have? Would you put that on your shelf? No. Like because it's it's it would read as outdated and silly and fragile. And because it, the whole point of it was simply to capture your mind in the 15 minutes you were paying attention to it. Right. Like. But and, I think yeah. I think there's there's something a little bit more alarming that I definitely want to call attention to with this is we've, we've been comparing pop science to political books in terms of how they are sort of mirroring each other. Right. But the thing is, is that politics books are in a lot of ways built to do that because like the political machine turns over every four years. Right. At least the presidency does. At least in Um, the popular imagination. Right. In the popular imagination, you know, there's, there's the idea where, okay, we finally have a Democrat president right. or whatever. We can, right. like, take a break, and next time we'll get the Republican president, we'll be mad about it. Right. Um, science doesn't have that. Like, science is both a much slower machine, but it's also one that, by necessity, 
builds off of everything that came before it, which makes the possibility of publishing moving into that sort of like political, like quick hit space much more dangerous. I think so, too. And especially, you know, obviously the pandemic has offered, you know, that that type of publishing a real hook. Right. Like it's here's the thing that's in front of your face that you're thinking about all the time. Bam. And like that is, I think. And this is a bit of a, you know, it's an alarmist take, but it's not, I guess not really, but like climate stuff, like when things start deteriorating and sorry, but they're, <laughs> they're going to. When our like, vice president talks that, about treating water this, like saying, an oil. This is what yeah. I'm saying. Like <laughs> climate based catastrophes are coming. We know this. Like, and that those are going to raise people's alarms and that's going to, um, you know, like that's going to lead to opportunities quote unquote for this sort of splashy publishing that might just take advantage of someone's big platform who's spreading misinformation you know Mm -hmm. like you know i just you're gonna see we have to get this right you know i think that and there's one other and this is where i kind of want to transition into that um you know that letter because it sounds unrelated but like that letter that like the uh okay talk talk about what the women's prize letter okay so for those who haven't been logged on all week. So this is going to make sense as a, as a continuous topic in a second. But this week, someone, um, a group called the Wild Woman Writing Club, uh, wrote an open letter to, they. it's right here on their page, I'm reading it, open letter to the Women's Prize. Which, if you're not familiar with that, it used to be called the Orange Prize for Women's Fiction or something like that. I don't know, the Orange something or yeah. other. Yeah. So, like, it's this prize for, you know, women writers. Yep. And they're mad this year and they're mad because uh the writer tori peters has written a uh novel called detransition baby that i have not read but everyone tells me it's excellent i have it on hold at the um, library and it's up for this prize and this group is furious because tori peters is a trans woman um and you can already imagine um where their source of frankly, quite bigoted anger comes from. Um, this is the part where I'm going to read a small snippet from the letter, and you're going to see how it connects to the other things we've been talking about here. Um, so, yeah, here's, here's a very small passage from it. It is now orthodox, if counterfactual and pseudoscientific, that people can change sex by changing their appearance. If a man could become a woman simply by wearing lipstick and fantasizing about occupying our bodies, what would that make women? So, obviously, that's some bullshit. So that's yeah. apart from that's repulsive. Um, it's a, I mean, you know, anyone at this point, if you're listening to this show, I'm sort of assuming that you're not someone who is calling into question trans personhood and you know and things. If like, you are, please stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> this is a no turf zone. Um, but like, I think that what really alarms me about a passage like that. You know, and this le- this letter, I mean, w- encouragingly, was widely mocked <laughs> in my corner of the internet. I mean, at the end, it's signed by a bunch of dead writers. Like, Emily Dickinson signed this letter, weirdly. What? Like, they just, like, made up a bunch. Like, you know, it's just one of those sort of things, right? It's sort of a clownish document in its own way. But what does what did kind of get my hackles up is that line here, too, where they can cloak bigotry. And, in pseudoscience. And or frankly, claim that the real science is yes. pseudoscience. So when they say, you know... When they're using words like, oh, it's counterfactual, it's pseudoscientific that, you know, trans women are women, you know, like it's, that's dangerous. 
That's really dangerous. And it's dangerous, especially right now, when you look broadly at like what's happening in states like Arkansas or North Carolina or these places where they are passing, you know, real legislation based on, you know, what is actual pseudoscience. You know what I mean? Like the scientific consensus is there on trans people. Like it's not a there actually isn't much debate left, but like the right, you know, and the people who think like this would love to reopen things on the basis of fake science, right? And it's... Because if they say it loud loud enough, Eric, might it might become true science. <laughs> well, it's just... <laughs> and so it becomes all the more... You can see how something like this, where they have picked up the mantle of, well, this is the science, these are the facts, and they use it to push a narrative that is going to hurt people, and it is hurting people, and it has hurt people, like... In real life and also it, in other areas of publishing. Yes, absolutely. And you, it becomes the sort of thing where scientific publishing, both academic, obviously, but also in terms of the popular, this would be another area, like we were just talking about, like similar to epidemiology or like climate catastrophe. This is the sort of thing where it actually really does matter what, popu- what like the popular imagination believes is the quote unquote real science. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. that affects people's lives. And like, you know, doing that research does involve a certain element of, like, the science is political, is maybe what we could say about it, right? Yep. And it's just so important these next few years across so many different topics that nonfiction publishers behave responsibly and they vet people and they look for credentials and they do things and they, like, look into what that person has written. Pre- like, one thing that happens all the time across all sorts of different publishing, not just book publishing is someone will hire some columnist or some essayist or whatever. They'll assign someone to a book deal. And then they have to do the backtrack, right? Because what happens <laughs> in the 72 hours between the signing and the unsigning is everybody points out that this person has spent however many years trafficking in fake science or slurs or you know other you know racist fear-mongering or other sort of bigotry, things like that. And... That work needs to be done up front. You know what I mean? Like people, we have to be careful right now because we are in just a golden age of fake credentialism. Mm -hmm. And that has real world stakes. It has stakes for the pandemic. It has stake for the climate. It has stake for the lives of trans people. Like we have to get this right. And it's important in the industry that loves to pretend that it is the purveyor of ideas that change the world. Like we have to I, I just think it's important as ever, especially when those flashes of attention fade. Right. Because what gets published is going to be calcified as this was the consensus of the time. And I, I don't know. I mean, I just think like it's a really critical period to get a lot of this sort of popular science writing. Right. You know. Yeah. So so obviously um, those that are listening, if they're not scientists and they're not writing pop right. science or anything like that or they're not acquiring pop science. The, the kind of best way to go about this is to, or to, to, you know, kind of push publishing towards putting out the right kind of books, yeah. right, is to boost and put your money towards the good ones. So I, I want to get to the Tulum It May Concern, yeah, but can you it. really quickly cover, um, just like give us some guidelines on how to identify like what's a good piece of popular science and what's bunk and like what is what is going to further that genre and what is going to hurt it well the thing that feels the most obviously like 
for me, like with pop science, when I was evaluating as an editor and evaluating now as an agent, is like the more giant and sweeping the claim, the more skeptical you should be. So like, for instance, um, you know, in terms of sweeping claims, this is a deal that was on Publishers Marketplace last month. On This is March 9th, 2021. Uh, the book is called Pandemia by Alex Berenson. And here we go. Former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson's Pandemia, arguing that COVID-19 curtailed personal freedom. Um, so that's obviously a, <laughs> like, the more simple and the bigger the, like, claim, you know, especially. Wait, so this is a science book complaining that, like, we couldn't go outside for a year because yeah. we were protecting our communities. Yeah. That's that's an yeah. entire book. Yeah. Um, okay. So, but, like, <laughs> you can see how, like. You know, it makes this big, giant claim, and, like, they are, you know, this isn't someone with a doctorate. This isn't someone who knows what they're, you know, has any sort of academic credential for what they're saying. I mean, things like that. Like, it's it's important to be really, like, careful with where you're getting your, I mean, it's the same sort of, like, information literacy that we're also fluent in now with, like, politics stuff, right? Like, just be skeptical of huge claims, you know understand where things are coming from. I mean, we're in an age, too, that I think is really helpful where, like, a writer who puts out a book, you can probably go find out what else they've been working on, what else they've been thinking about. You, know, you can also find people taking all of their stuff and synthesizing it and right. making connections that maybe you don't have the, right. the right. expertise to do. So I just mean, like, just be mindful of the broad, you know, the broader context of in which an author is working are they someone who is you know a political operative in some way which is not i'm not saying that as a bad thing i'm saying or as it's a neutral thing it could be a bad thing it could be a fine thing but like where do they sit with regard to you know like what is their agenda what are they pushing like do they actually ha are they someone who is the expert themselves or are they synthesizing someone else's research like how responsibly have they done that you know what i mean like things things like that are all I think really important right now and it's just and maybe you know the other in the, the to close like the other thing about it is just to pay attention and just ask yourself a fundamental question that we should ask ourselves about any kind of nonfiction which is is this book positioning itself in a way that is trying to alarm me or mm -hmm. is it trying to inform me and very often we can point to a lot of different books across a number of different disciplines in nonfiction where the answer is that first one, right? And those books are not – we need the other kind. We need the kind that is just going to focus on information and you know narrative and engagement and all the other things we like about books but like are based on an accurate – you know, and in <laughs> – like I, I, you know, I feel so – stupid being the person here sitting here like you know the truth matters you know which <laughs> because like those people are insufferable but like it's we do have to do our due diligence right now and when I say we I mostly mean let not readers necessarily but like agents editors publishers people making these decisions because we're gonna put things in people's hands and those things have to be they have to be responsible because we're in a really critical and fragile period you know mm-hmm yeah, I'm just like closing closing this argument out with like the image of one of those David Attenborough nature documentaries where he's talking about how like this bird's habitat yeah. is disappearing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but like it's also like 
don't go immediately to this bird's habitat and like do things. Right. You know, just <laughs> be mindful of. Yeah. You know, it's very reasonable. It's yeah. like, well, this is sucky and it's happening, and here now you know about it, and so now maybe you can go forth with it. Yeah. Um. So anyway. There's a Tulum. Yes. Um, I've done a lot of talking this episode, and I'm excited to... Have this me is, This talk. is a loon that I'm really interested <laughs> in your thoughts on. So, here we go. Tulum. My agent has warned me that some of my ideas may not be received with enthusiasm from editors and to not write them right now. And then in parentheses, we are working on my middle grade and YA debuts because editors are tired of Western mythology and we need a major twist. This is a frustrating thing for me to swallow because I know while they are bored with these tropes, black people like me have not gotten to tell these stories. My elves and vampires and tournaments are full of black people, and I doubt they would have the same feel and flavor of the stories that have quote-unquote killed these tropes. Is she right? Is this something I should wait to push onto editors after I have debuted? Anonymous Loonstan. Okay, I love this question. Really, really good question. I love this question. Um, And... The, one of the reasons I love this question is because there's not like a straightforward yes or no answer. So I so I want to kind of talk a little bit in general about market fatigue and yeah. editor fatigue and what that means. Yeah. Um, so like most things, uh, there are there's like a pendulum to trends, right? Like right now we're we're wearing like grandma jeans from the '90s and you know like scrunchies and whatnot. Um, things come back around. And so a lot of like tropes, you know, I've talked about vampires, about how when I first started as an agent, the vampire trend was ending. Like they just, there was market saturation because people kept buying the vampire books. It kind of became a thing. And eventually they stopped selling well. So people stopped acquiring them. Then if you have a break, and especially for things like children's literature, where the audience turns over relatively quickly, you eventually receive you see a return. So like we are starting to see vampires in in projects right now and we're starting to sell them and it's not something that's impossible anymore. This is something that happens kind of outside of any sort of like killing tropes or and I, I like to think that just general market fatigue is in a lot of ways responsible for any sort of um, reason that your agent might say no to something, even though you're bringing a new spin on it. Um, because if somebody really is tired of vampires and they don't want to see another vampire for two more years, it doesn't matter what your vampires are like, right? Yeah. That being said, <laughs> um, you're absolutely right that the the idea of just like specific trope fatigue um just by being like really old tropes or really just kind of generally popular tropes rather than a specific trend like a vampire trend um more of those like general tropes um you can push back on those a little bit more um when you're adding a different spin to them so if you know this is a traditionally like western white cis het etc um trope and you're putting black characters in into it and and bringing elements from that specific culture you're going to be dealing with something differently however um the publishing machine is racist 
Like, there's just, like, no way to kind of get around that. Um, no matter how many incredible editors of color are being hired and how many amazing um, books by Black authors are hitting the New York Times bestseller list, you still have a system that is fundamentally capitalist and fundamentally run at the top by um, straight white men. And they're throwing on millions and millions of dollars to people like Mike Pence. And so I think it's it, like I have a very frank conversation with my writers of color saying, you know, like, I want you to play in the sandbox that like you haven't seen representation in before. I think you could do an incredible job. I want to see that type of book. An editor might want to see that type of book. But like it's always going to be harder because it's right like the institution is set up to to put more blocks in your way. Well, it seems like a key then like because I I like I I really kind of connected with one of the first things you said here which is like the you know, if we're talking about tropes that are you know, sort of exhausted by a predominantly, you know, white you know, set of authors, you know, yep. such that when it's finally time for, you know, the lethargic and sclerotic publishing machine to look toward people who aren't, you know, white to write, you know, like they're tired of the thing you've been working on all this time. Like right. to me, the answer then is a little bit on, you know, agent and editor to pitch the book and position the book in a way that, yeah, acknowledges that it's maybe the same tropes, but really emphasizing the points of difference, right? Like, yeah. like and this is not necessarily, this isn't a point that I would necessarily, that necessarily has to be connected to race, but it certainly applies, but it's like, okay, what's different here? What's, like, what is, what makes this something that an editor isn't, you know, hasn't seen a million times, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because and it, you, anytime you pitch anything, you try to emphasize that. And so what I would say, like, is the you know the value judgment here has to kind of be made on like do you think that you know this can be pitched you know in a way that really emphasizes you know the points of differentiation rather the than the points of similarity exactly. and like, adherence so, to a trope exactly exactly yeah. like and that that's obviously really tricky because sometimes you know the points of differentiation are really closely tied to our identities you know I will and, also say that it's that for somebody who is like if we're talking science fiction fantasy, fantasy yeah. tropes, like a big fan, yeah. I can imagine where it could be really like painful in a lot of ways for a writer to write something that is putting representation and their own spin on something that they've loved forever and then needing to sell it by saying that it's not that. Like that sucks. Um, and so, you know, this is just like a quick note that that might be a strategy that your agent puts forward, but if that's not something that like feels good or true to you, then yeah. like you don't have to do right. it. You can say no to that Absolutely. type of strategy. Absolutely. Um, and you know, I there's there's one more point in this in this to Luna May concern about what to do. Like, are am I allowed to do these things post debut? Um, and it is definitely worth mentioning that you know once you've got a piece on the board right like once you've got a book out especially if it's been successful you're going to have more freedom and kind of more attention and so like 
I think a, a really short, unnuanced answer to this overall question is, yes, you should wait to do like elves and dragons and quests and things like that until we've got your first book out. But I think that that is a cop out, quite honestly, yeah. because what it's doing is it's not allowing um, editors and specifically like imprints to really like see the value in the a new spin on genre with a debut yeah. and you're not getting them the opportunity which means that they might not change doing things it's also like I don't know like every and I don't know the specifics about these types of books I don't know the specifics about your career I don't know the specifics about your agent but it's one of those things where like as an agent I always want to make I would rather make no steps in forwarding your career than to make steps in the wrong direction. Absolutely. That's and a great point. if great point. because, you know, my ultimate goal, and I say this all the time, is like I want to eventually get you to a point where you can just like stay standing and you can basically like pivot and do anything that you want from yeah. the point that you're standing in. Right. Yeah. And um if if like you're going to be you know, a tropey, like traditional D&D style fantasy author, like if that is your forever goal, it might be worth it to like challenge the the difficulties of the publishing institution and really like set yourself up with that as a debut, even though it might be harder and even though there might be some kind of direct or institutionalized racism you might have to deal with given that these are tropes that have been seen and quote unquote killed before. I think this is, you know, to like talk shop for a second. Like I think that this is an agent like situation. Yeah. Like this is the sort of work where if, you know, if I'm repping this book and I feel strongly about it, which ostensibly I do because I, you know, signed it like I'm, you know, maybe rather than just like sending out a, you know, cookie cutter pitch about elves i'm calling this around i'm saying yeah hey maybe you've seen this you know sort of trope before but yeah. here's why it's different i'm going to send you, you got to take a look at like there's a like some of this is solved by a little extra legwork yeah you know what i mean like to get the book because obviously at the end of the day you can't convince people to like a book like you can't convince an editor to like a book or not but what you can do is you can put the manuscript in position to get a fair hearing, right? And so, like, that's the work that I think, you know, maybe in a situation like this takes a little bit of extra work, yeah. you know, on the agent's part to, like, say, hey, I'm not just going to send, you know, the email out. I'm going to... I'm sending it to people who I know that are going to value that it's a twist on a current trope. And I'm going to get on... Like, I just... Yeah. My theme for this spring has been get on the damn phone. <laughs> because, like, real conversations, you know what I mean? Like, what you just described is a really good piece of rationale for why someone should carefully consider your work. Yeah. Now, that, you know, this, that is something that came through in kind of a longer, more complex thing than perhaps the scope of the pitch, which means that there is a task here in getting across that stuff to an editor before they're just, like, clicking through their emails. You to know somebody what I mean? who's like, going to value it. So, yeah. like, I just think, like, with anything, like, the, there's work here to do, um, you know, on the agent's part, if, you know, yeah. they really feel strongly about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, like, this is such a nuanced conversation. There's so many variables. Um, but this is just, like, a good final reminder to, like, talk with your agents about their submission strategies. Like, 
one of my favorite things is like getting on the phone with my you know my authors and explaining like why I haven't submitted to XYZ person or you know like what is tier A what is tier B what is tier C for what I'm doing and you know like I've gotten to a point where with my science fiction and fantasy I can just like email the editors I know and be like yeah this is like D&D but super gay and like that's mm-hmm. enough like there's yeah. <laughs> you know like yeah. with my brand and my taste and the and the projects that I do and the type of people that I'm trying to hit like it's that's that's a benefit. You gotta right? work. I mean, like yeah. what you're describing is agenting. You know, yeah, and it's it turns not, out <laughs> agenting is not just turning around and sending a query letter to the next rung of people in publishing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just it's a much more nuanced, energetic job than that. And that's the task here, I think. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, that was fun. That was very fun. Oh my god, you we haven't had you talk so much in ages and ages. Um, Everyone's like mad now. They're like turning out. <laughs> More Laura. Um, anyway, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Print Run. Uh, remember to send us your requests for mini-sodes and special episodes and your queries and your first pages to us. We are at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you for a regular episode next week. Bye. Bye.